is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Chris Seatons. And I'm Rob Archer. And today for Charles Feldman, the L.A. City Council takes a major step against the oil and gas industry with the first of two votes to ban new drilling and phasing out the wells that already exist. It's a move that's going to make environmentalists happy, but there are some downsides uh, to consumers, and if there are, we'll go in-depth on those. President Biden pushed for major changes to the Democratic presidential primary system. Uh, Democrats listened. We'll tell you about a major change that was just voted on. And can Kanye West ever salvage what's left of his music and business career after his latest comments about Nazis and Hitler, or is he done for good? Former President Donald Trump loses a legal fight over the seized Mar-a-Lago documents. This comes as the January 6th committee is wrapping up its final report and could recommend criminal charges be filed against the former president. We'll go in-depth into uh, Donald Trump's legal problems with the Justice Department. Also, reports are out about slavery reparation estimates. Uh, from the state task force looking into the matter. We'll talk to the committee chair about whether these massive numbers are, in fact, accurate. We're going to start with the end of oil and gas drilling in L.A. With us right now is Kevin Slagle, vice president of strategic communications for the Western States Petroleum Association, which is a, a trade association representing oil companies in the Western United States. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm going to go out on a limb when I ask you uh, what will this mean for consumers, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you're going to tell me higher prices. Am I right? You are right. Um, we that's how we've uh, that's how we view it. I think the the facts are when you reduce availability of any commodity, especially a commodity like oil, which powers our economy, that usually leads to higher costs. So, so you're right. Uh, Kevin, there was so much uh, pressure being put on government leaders to to take a stand like this. I take it you understand why they're they're looking at this, and and I guess what I'm wondering is is there any other option? Well, look, we understand the pressure, and unfortunately, the pressure doesn't always come from a, a place where all of the facts and all the data is considered. And when, when you look at that, this industry operates in the toughest environmental, environmental uh, regulations in the world, the toughest operating environment in the world, there's a lot of safeties in place for public health and, and community concern. You know, that said, we do think there's a better way. We think a better way is more collaborative. It's a, it's a, it's a way that allows us to continue to Okay, it appears I, I we think we've lost him. Yeah. Lost Kevin. Kevin. Uh, okay, we'll we'll try and get him back on the line. We're speaking with Kevin Slagle, Vice President, Strategic Communications there? for the Western St- uh, States Petroleum Association. Kevin, can you hear us? I can hear you. Yes. I okay, we, we we lost you there. Yeah. If you can continue with your thought. Yeah. yeah so I, I hopefully you heard most of it, but yeah, we do think there's a better way, and that better way involves maintaining the affordability and reliability of the energy we provide while we transition to more renewable and sustainable sources. Look, we, we, we operate under the toughest environmental regulations in the world already. We understand how important that is to be, you know, take care of our communities where we operate. And we're always willing to, to step in there. But to ban and mandate us away, especially at a time when you have the president of the United States asking for more production, looking to other parts of the world, here in California where we do it very safely and in a way that, again, protects the environment as best as we can, seems to be a little bit uh you know, there's there's some mixed messages being sent and and the city council decided 
Now, I, I understand where you're coming from, but but uh, and I'm sure that you understand this. Uh, what I'm about to tell you is that a lot of consumers have been very uh, upset, uh, up in arms lately. They feel that the oil companies and they've been being gouged at the gas pump. So the reason I asked you if your response was going to be that the oil companies will have to raise the price of gas for us uh, with this uh, ban on uh, drilling. Uh, so... Um, how are you going to respond to consumers that say, well, this is just another excuse. Uh, you know, when somebody yeah. sneezes somewhere else in the world, the oil companies raise the price of gas at the pump. Yeah, well, look, I, we can understand the public sentiment, especially when costs are high, right? There's a lot of questions, and that's, and that's fair. And earlier this week, there was a California Energy Commission hearing that, you know, frankly, we weren't sure it was going to be much more in a political show, but it actually turned into a real good discussion about these types of issues. And the bottom line, when you, look, when you look at, when you listen to what the California Energy Commission staff said, uh, not our experts, the government's experts, they point to market forces, they point to the high cost doing business in California, um, they point to public policy really being the issues, the issues behind why we see the costs that we do. So, I think what what we've seen, especially with this governor, is this demonization of the men and women of our industry and what we do. And in that environment of demonization, I think you know that that sort of anger or, or concern has been raised. And, and and unfortunately, what we really need to have is a is a discussion based on the facts and and what these costs are really about. And that's been very tough to do uh, working with with the governor in the state and, and in some municipalities here in Los Angeles, for example. So we understand consumer concern. What we'd say is, you know, taxing our way, banning our way, mandating our way out of these high costs is not the answer. It's never been the answer. It's not going to be the answer in the future. What is the answer is better communication, actually sitting down and talking these things through. All right. Kevin, thank you. Again, that's Kevin Slagle. He is the vice president of strategic communications for the Western States Petroleum Association. That is a trade association representing oil companies in the Western United States. Uh, right now, the Democrats have just voted to remove Iowa as the leadoff state on the presidential nominating calendar and replace it with South Carolina. Now, the move by the Democratic National Committee comes after President Biden called for changes to how Democrats run their presidential primaries. With us now is Don Hader-Markle, political science chair at the University of Kansas. He specializes in the dynamics between uh, public opinion, political behavior, and public policy. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, give us an idea in your view of uh, why the president thinks this is a good idea and why the Democratic National Committee goes along with this and what good will it do for Democrats? Well, good afternoon. Um, I think in, in the end, the, the basic idea is to get a more diverse set of states up first um, in the Democratic primary in particular, uh, because the party is in large part reliant on black and Latino voters. Um, to have some states that are, have a more diverse population of Blacks and Latinos would be helpful to choosing the Democratic nominee. Um, it also sort of bodes the, um, the last sort of breaths of the caucus system, uh, which in 2020 only three states still used. Uh, but overall, the, the, the trend has been towards more direct primaries and trying to have more diverse primaries. Well, Iowa, first caucus, New Hampshire, first primary. Uh, they get somewhat up in arms when the conversation even just comes up about uh, losing that status. But is this just really a tradition uh, that, you know, there's there's no real importance on it? Yeah, well, you have to remember that primaries themselves began to emerge 
um, early in the 20th century, kind of went away for a while and then came back in the 1960s. Um, for example, the West Virginia and Wisconsin primaries being very important for President Kennedy. Um, but increasingly, we've gone to caucus system or away from the caucus system more to direct primaries, taking control of the nomination process away from party leaders and putting it in the hands of, of voters, um, really trying to get to this point of deciding who goes first. I mean, Iowa's only been first since 1972, um, which is a long period of time now, but certainly historically is is relatively recent. Um, so I think it just kind of continues a trend in the Democratic Party towards pushing move away from Iowa and New Hampshire. Now, the current proposal that the committee voted on, which has to be voted on by the full DNC, um, probably in 2023, that proposal puts Nevada and New Hampshire on the same day um, and we'll see if that holds up. But overall, I think uh, the states themselves are going to have to make decisions about whether or not they want their delegates sat at the national convention and want to or if they want to um, go ahead and move their change their laws and move their dates. You know, going back, you talk about uh, the way that the parties are evolving. You know, back in the olden days, the the uh, party leaders, Democrats, Republicans, whichever party was up front at the time, uh, picked who they wanted their candidates to be. And then they kind of presented them to the voters. And here's here's our guy. You're going to vote for this one. And uh, moving away from caucuses, I understand that uh, puts more voice back into the hands of the uh, the people who vote in the primaries. But, you know, there is a concern among uh, some people in the party, and not because they're against democracy, but because they think that sometimes people make bad choices and they would rather pick the candidate that they want the party to get behind. And there is a concern that maybe they'll pick some kind of guy who who looks good on TV or a person who, who is uh, very populist but at the same time has some weird ideas and, and they don't want to fall into that trap. How do you balance that out between making sure that voters pick the best person that gives the party the best chance of winning that presidential election? It's really tough to balance out. Obviously, we've seen it more recently with um, some candidates doing well with party leaders, but not so well with, with voters. Um, and I, I think you saw this pattern in 2016 in particular, where the Republican leadership really didn't like Trump as a candidate, um, but Republican voters certainly did like him and put him through all the way. And I think Democrats are trying to avoid those kinds of scenarios. And the only way to sort of balance that at this point, rather than going away from the primary system, is for leaders in the party to try to coalesce um, along with donors behind a particular candidate before the caucuses and primaries even start. Uh, Don, how much pressure is there or is there pressure for that matter from different states, their leaders to get their states first or at least close to first? Well, there's been pressure for a long time. I mean, the recent troubles in, in 2020 with or in, in 2020 with um, Iowa and the way they tried to run their caucus just sort of highlighted the, the voices that have been around for quite some time of saying we need to really move away from this, this Iowa scenario in particular because Iowa is so rural and so white and so much older than the, than the demographic of the U.S., that it just seems like a bad idea to keep it around. I, honestly, I think this would have happened sooner if it hadn't really made the difference for Obama in 2008, um, that his candidacy came through Iowa, was successful there, and basically that became the, uh, the, the beginnings of his victory 
in the 2008 election. So I think it would have happened sooner if it hadn't been for that. Um, but there's also, again, the fact that the party leaders themselves need to um, get together and try to uh, establish who the front runner should be before these primaries and caucuses really start if they want to have more say in the process. Now, the Democrats have a little bit more um, in the way of superdelegates have a little bit more sway over who their candidate might be than the Republicans do. Um, but both parties, that's a sort of backstop process rather than focusing on a front end process. All right. Don, thank you. Don Hader-Markle, political sciences uh, chair at the University of uh, Kansas, specializing in the dynamics between public opinion, public behavior and public policy. Coming up, former President Trump having a bad end to his week when it comes to the legal issues surrounding his presidency. And new dollar amounts are being reported about what the state reparations task force thinks descendants of slaves should receive. But are those numbers accurate? Right now, though, Kanye West, or as he likes to be called these days, yay, is again banned from Twitter for tweeting a swastika inside the Star of David. This comes after a series of anti-Semitic comments and recent uh, comments praising Hitler. Kanye, yay, was once regarded as one of hip-hop's biggest and brightest stars. Now his career might just be over. With us uh, to talk more about this is Howard Brewer, crisis PR expert, CEO of Newsroom Public Relations. Howard, thanks for joining us. Uh, Yay's behavior, to say the least, very puzzling. What might his goal be here with the praise of Hitler and these anti-Semitic comments? Well, his goal, you know, I think it's hard to understand. He wants attention. He's, he's breaking out. I think, I think when we talk about the things he's saying, the people he's associating with right now, to be clear, it doesn't get it worse than that. And I don't see him getting back all of that he has lost you know his marriage the sponsorships adidas they're gone you know um so i think his uh it's it's tricky to identify though what is his true true goal is he just trying to uh alex jones alex jones and donald trump or is he on some level challenging society not not to embrace nazis uh, but to demonstrate its understanding of how bad things can get for someone with bipolar disorder. You know, we talked about the mental health uh, issue and the and the mental illness and the bipolar disorder, and I understand where that's coming from, uh, and that might make somebody say things they wouldn't normally say. But at the same time, what they say does come from somewhere inside. You can be mentally ill. You can be drunk, but if you say racist, hateful things, that's because that's inside of you already, and all the mental illness does or, or the alcohol does is kind of release that inhibition that keeps you from saying that in public. So while we talk about mental illness here, when we talk about Kanye West, you know, I, I, I hate having to be the one to point out that there are people who are Nazis and neo-Nazis and white supremacists and they, they hate Jews and they hate gay people and they hate this and that democracy and everything else. They're not mentally ill. They're just filled with hate and bigotry. So is that maybe what's kind of happening with Kanye Hist? Yes, uh, Kanye here. Yes, maybe he's got some mental issues to deal with. But isn't this coming from inside of him? Isn't that already there? It's it's tricky to say. Um, for one thing, I mean, he he doesn't generally speaking fit the profile of the kind of person who would embrace Nazis. 
uh, and embrace Hitler. I think the best way to, to answer that question is for him to just totally get ahead of this bipolar disorder, just really find some way uh, to get out ahead of it in, in some very permanent way. And if he's still loving Nazis, well, you know, then we have a clear answer to the question. But at this point, you know, we, we, uh, it's hard to say. I mean, we see uh, here in Los Angeles all the time, homeless people shout obscenities at us. Do we believe everything that they're saying? Do we believe that they believe everything that they're saying? Or do we just kind of turn and leave it alone? And I think when someone is extremely successful and affluent, it's hard to give them the same you know, mulligan. You know, we hold them to a much higher standard. And that's why we become so shocked when O.J. Simpson kills two people. We hold the famous to much you know, higher standards. Um, either that or maybe you're someone who doesn't have mentally ill friends or family members. But they're all just people. Kanye is disturbed homeless person with fancier sneakers and the home he was kicked out from just happened to have Kardashians in it. Howard, let me put you on the spot somewhat. As a, as a PR expert, what could you do, what could anyone do to help a client like Kanye in a situation like this? Is there any way his career could survive something like this? I do see a door. You know, the problem is when you have a platinum-selling rapper with a god complex, it's hard to tell him what to write on Twitter or that it's time for a med check from his shrink. But I think something will give a new woman will successfully push for treatment. He'll commit a crime and be forced to undergo counseling, something like that. I'm not saying it will happen, but I see a path to it happening. Uh, um, you know, uh, and we, it can happen because we are all not yet totally convinced that Kanye's uh, professed love for Nazis is genuine, but we know that his mental illness is genuine. So I think the door for him is to just totally get ahead of the bipolar disorder, uh, reinvent himself times 1,000, and, you know, really become uh, an advocate, perhaps a poster child for mental illness. And again, I don't see him uh, getting back uh, the sponsorships, uh, the marriage, all the money that he's everything that he's flushing down the toilet right now. But uh, if he if he does all those things sincerely and we like what we see on the other side, there is a path there uh, for him being more uh, famous than infamous. Okay. Howard, thank you. Again, that's Howard Brewer, crisis PR expert. He's the CEO at Newsroom Public Relations. You're listening to KNX and Defs with Chris Edens. I'm Rob Archer, and today for Charles Feldman. Former President Donald Trump facing a big legal setback now that a federal appeals court has blocked the order, the order for an independent special master to look through the seized Mar-a-Lago documents. That's not the only thing he's got to worry about. The uh, January 6th committee met today to talk about possibly recommending that the Justice Department file criminal charges against him and others linked to January 6th. With us now is Kel McClanahan, Executive Director of National Security Counselors, which is a nonprofit public interest law firm that specializes in national security law and information and privacy law. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, do you think that the walls finally are closing in on Donald Trump? I think that it's closing incrementally. I think that they've been incrementally closing for about the last six months. But yeah, we did hit a major milestone 
this week. And so that's a good thing. In which case, and there are many that he's involved in, do you see as the most serious? Well, I think that there's more to be worried about if I were Donald Trump from the documents case, because there's always the option that if the January 6th committee makes a recommendation or makes a referral to the DOJ that about January 6th, the DOJ won't do anything about it. Uh, they may see that you know it's too attenuated, that it would be too difficult to prove that he had some kind of criminal uh, involvement in January 6th. But the documents case, they have him dead to rights. The only thing that's missing is a prosecution, an indictment, because on paper, he's guilty. Like, there is no disputing most of the evidence. And the only thing standing in the way was this attempt to keep DOJ from, from studying the records. And that now has been shot down by the circuit. That said, will his running for president kind of shield him, as he apparently thinks it will, uh, shield him from prosecution in that case? No, because for a couple of reasons. Number one, Merrick Garland has known from the moment that Trump walked out of the White House on January 20th that he was going to run for president. You know, that has been a foregone conclusion. And the mere uttering of the magic words, I am now declaring my candidacy, does not stop you from being able to be prosecuted for crimes. If that were the case, everyone about to be prosecuted would declare their candidacy for president. The rules that are in place are still more guidelines than actual binding authority inside the DOJ. And when you have a case like this, where you have someone being investigated for a serious major crime or series of crimes two years out from an election, of course, they're going to continue investigating. Of course, they're going to prosecute him. You know, you know, we all watch and hear about the legal trouble that, that he's facing on so many different fronts. But but many people likely it, it, it's been going on so long. They tune out. They see it on their cable news channel. It's OK. You know, we know we've we've heard about this for so long. Is there going to eventually come a point where we see action taken against the former president? And what might that be? Fines? Prison time? Well, I mean, what, what what's at the end? Well, the idea of prison time for a former president is an interesting logistical challenge because you know, he's still entitled to Secret Service protection, and he's still a person that our enemies would want to get hold of and threaten and try to get information from. And so security-wise, it would be difficult to put him in prison. Now, they might put him in solitary or house arrest or something, but the crimes that he's looking at right now are prison crimes. They are not fines. They are you committed espionage. You violated the Espionage Act. You are going to jail like reality winner, like they tried to do with Edward Snowden. People who leak documents, people who mishandle national defense information to get prosecuted, go to jail. 
Uh, you know, there are people who look at uh, Donald Trump from both sides, uh, supporters and, and his opponents, and they say, you know, he, he gets away with it all the time. He's gotten away with it. Uh, he was impeached twice uh, and and survived both of those uh, attempts. Uh, even before he got into politics, you know, he would get in trouble, be sued for this. He'd have criminal charges for that, fraud this, fraud that, and gets away with it every time. Is he getting away with this? I don't think so. I think that he crossed a line and it was because he was so used to getting away with things and he's so used to the political arena, whether it be the politics of being the president in the Republican uh, administration or being just the rich guy who can sort of shrug off and, and, and buy allies. He did. He finally did something that he cannot wiggle out of. He's been trying for two years to wiggle out of it. He's still being indicted. He might get found not guilty because all it takes is one or two true believers on the jury to not convict him. But, you know, it's going to go to the jury. Okay. Cal will be uh, waiting and watching. Cal, thank you again. That's Cal McClanahan. He is executive director of National Security Counselors. California's Reparations Task Force has been looking into ideas for how to compensate descendants of slaves here in the state. There's been a number floating around now in uh, news reports. It says the panel is estimating that roughly $570 billion is owed to these descendants due to housing discrimination from 1933 to 1977. Yeah, when you put it together, that would come to $223,000 per person. With us to explain more is Camila Moore, chair of the Reparations Task Force. Thank you so much for taking some time to speak with us today. First of all, can you clear things up? Is that number that Rob just gave $570 billion correct? Well, thank you for having me. And it is incorrect in the sense that the task force has not made any final recommendations yet. We're still in our development and public comment phase of the work. But that $559 billion figure is in reference to a scope of work document that was presented to the task force by a five-member economic consultant team that we had hired over the summer. Uh, They presented this scope of work at our September public hearing. And so according to the economic consultant team, the $559 billion figure represents the state of California's maximum liability for de jure home home ownership discrimination um, if, in fact, all 2 million Black Californian residents who lived in the state of 2021 were actually descendants of the enslaved in the United States and had spent their entire time period in the state from 1933 to 1977 or were the legal heirs of the person that did. However, if you look at the document, it goes on to state that it is not likely that all Black folks who lived in California in 2021 also resided in the state between 1933 and 1977, or are legal heirs of eligible recipients who did. Thus, only a portion of the census category would be eligible. So essentially, in layman's terms, That $559 billion figure is the state of California's maximum liability for the state-sanctioned atrocities that it has perpetuated in the form of home ownership, discrimination, racist redlining practices. But in reality, 
um, that figure would be much lower when we take into account who would actually be eligible, who was actually impacted by housing discrimination during that particular time period. All right. So that's Um, that's the uh, maximum amount. uh, And going on those figures, you know, we estimated about two hundred twenty three thousand dollars per person, if that was the amount. And and now you're explaining that's the maximum liability. But let's say Mm -hmm. that, that we come to a figure and it comes out to this much money per person. And you've just described some of the conditions uh, that would have to be on the people to make sure that they are due this money. Isn't this uh, isn't this a logistical nightmare? <laughs> uh, no, because the economic consultant team that we hired um, are experts in what they do. Uh, Dr. William A. Darity, who is an economist at Duke University, William A. Spriggs, who's the chair of the economics department at Howard University. He's currently the lead economist at the AFL-CIO. We have Thomas Kramer, who is a professor of public policy at University of Connecticut. Um, and so we're working with people who know what they're doing, along with the nine-member task force. That's what the next six, seven months are for, is for us to uh, debate, discuss, and then begin to determine what those final numbers will look like. Well, that, that kind of leads to my next question. How much work must still be done to, to get to the right amount? What kind of a timeline are you looking at? Yeah, so uh, the task force sunsets June, July 1 of 2023. Uh, that's where we will begin. That's where we will release our final report, which will be released July 1 of 2023. Then it will be up to the California state legislature to turn our final recommendations within that report into law. And then it will be up to the governor to actually uh, enact it. Do you have concerns that uh, that the legislature and the governor might uh, might not like the outcome of your recommendation and and vote against it? Uh, Potentially, that is a possibility. uh, But the legislature has thus far exercised some good faith measures. For instance, in June, the state legislature invited us uh, to be honored after our interim report was released June 1 of this year. And so we received standing ovations from both the California State Assembly chambers and the Senate chambers. And then at our most recent hearing in L.A. in September, the task force decided to unanimously voted to send a to send to every single state legislator a copy of our 500 page 13 chapter report. Right. So they have it in in their hands right now. <laughs> okay. Camila, thank you again. That's Camila Moore. She's chair of the Reparations Task Force. And with that, uh, that'll close the book on this week's edition of KNX In-Depth. Another week of In-Depth in the book, in the books rather. Uh, for Rob Archer, I'm Chris Seeds. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. We're back Monday.